0: tell you something here. Preaching on Easter is different. It's different because it's one day, right? But from the time Jesus rose from the dead to his ascension into heaven, that length was 40 days. And a lot happened in those 40 days. So I'm thinking, how can I fit all that's happened in those 40 days into one sermon today? And I can't, but I believe the Lord has given us a word from the Bible today for those who know who Jesus is. For those of us who have come and who are seeking and trying to figure out who Jesus is, and for definitely some of us here who are a bit more guarded, but are curious as to see why so many people worship this Jesus. Now I say all that because if Jesus rose today, which he did, he would be moving around in the world, appearing to and discipling his disciples for the next five, six weeks. What does that mean? It means that the resurrection wasn't just a one-day event. Yes, he rose on Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago, but Jesus, beginning on Easter evening, he began instructing his disciples for the next 40 days, and I think it would be wise for us to hear what our risen Lord has to say. Amen? So I want to. I have a couple points to make today. The first is this, and I get right, I'll get right into it. The Bible reveals the gospel of Jesus Christ, Period. The Bible reveals the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Christians place a lot of emphasis on the Bible. You always hear me say, that is my authority, and that should be our authority. And there's a reason why. Because it tells us the only story that we need to know. Now, a lot of unbelievers have certainly heard of the Bible, especially in the United States of America here. They've heard many stories that have originated from Scripture. People all have heard, whether you're a believer or not, stories like, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Those are well-known. People have also heard of stories about Noah and the flood, or how about David and Goliath. People have certainly heard of the Ten Commandments, popularized by Charlton Heston back in the 1950s. Great movie. I recommend it. So many of us here have grown up thinking we pretty much know what the Bible says. We think it's filled with fantastical stories of heroism and miracles. We think it's filled with a lot of good moral teachings from the wise King Solomon. But then we also think the Bible is a bit outdated, a bit archaic. So when we pluck a verse or two from Leviticus, let's say, it has certain hot topic issues that we would today deem controversial and say, well, you know what? The Bible needs to get with the times. The Bible is irrelevant. It's not something that I like to raise my life on. It's just a book filled with a lot of everything, but a lot of nothing at the same time. That's what a lot of people say. Now, these days, I have to admit, Christians have this kind of strange view of what's going on in the Bible. Yes, I said Christians. While the world ignores the Bible as completely irrelevant, archaic, outdated, Many Christians believe it tells us everything we want to know. And I don't think that's entirely true because there's a lot of things I'd like to know, but the Bible just doesn't tell me. For instance, I want to know all the whens and hows of creation. I want to know when the dinosaurs lived and why they're extinct. Don't get me started on my side project of trying to turn Jurassic Park into a reality. I want to know how the various races of humans got so different, so diverse. I want to know how God performed the various miracles which the Bible records. You know, i shared the story before, but there was a story of a young boy who was ooing and aahing about the wonders of the Israelites walking straight through the part of Red Sea. When all of a sudden, a scholarly professor interrupted the boy and said, well, actually, there is scientific evidence to support the claim that during that time in that season, the tide of the sea was so strong that combined with the arid, dry climate of the region, that the middle of the Red Sea was probably no more than 16 inches deep. So therefore, young man, it wasn't a miracle. In fact, the Israelites just waded right through. And then boy thought for a moment, Wow, mister, that's a bigger miracle than I thought. And he said, Young man, what are you talking about? And he said, I can't believe that the entire Egyptian army drowned in 16 inches of water. These are things that we want to figure out. I want to know how God can possibly raise dead bodies long after they've been decayed and sensually destroyed. I want to know why Jesus chose Judas of all people to be his disciple knowing he would betray him. You see, the list of questions are endless and endless and ongoing. Wouldn't it be great if the Bible had a Google search built in it, huh? Like, just Google financial success, and the Bible will tell us where to invest or put our monies in. Or Google resurrection, and the Bible will give you a step-by-step explanation of how it all happened. Or Google happy marriage, and the Bible will give you a DIY Bible recipe of exactly what to do and what not to do. And the thing is, that's what a lot of people think the Bible to be. But folks, the Bible is not like that. Turn to David and say, it's not like that. God, He doesn't give us a how to manual in the Bible. Instead, He gives us stories, and He gives us songs, and He gives us guiding general principles. But all those things serve His one great singular purpose, and that is the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what the Bible's about. If you read the Bible and it's just a book of do's and don'ts, then you've read it wrong. If you read the Bible and it's just a collection of interesting stories to teach your child or yourself how to live an upright, moralistic life, then you've read it wrong. The Bible tells us one singular thing, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is our Savior and Lord. But what exactly is the gospel? You know, Apostle Paul, whenever I say Apostle Paul, that word apostle, it means, by the way, the one who is sent, okay? And we know that he is an apostle because there are three criteria, three qualifications, and this is all kind of a tangent, but just... Good for you guys to know. One is this you have to have witnessed the resurrected Christ. Number two, you have to be explicitly chosen by and anointed by the Holy Spirit. And lastly, you have to have the ability to perform signs and wonders. So if you have anyone today walking around the street saying, I'm an apostle, say, uh, oh, I don't think so. So Apostle Paul here he says this he gives us a short but a to the point definition. Of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says this Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. And what is the gospel? He says from verse 3 that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Christ died, he was buried, and he rose on the third day. Amen. And it was the gospel that was taught by Jesus and the other disciples in the days between his resurrection and his ascension to heaven. Jesus taught them how everything the Bible said about him must be fulfilled. And that the Bible specifically foretold, predicted his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, which had now taken place. He's saying, look, I am the living proof. I am the evidence of all that has been written about me. Now, maybe right now some of you guys are thinking, I'm scratching my head. Because I don't ever recall reading anything like that in the Old Testament. Now, some of you guys who may not be too well-versed about Scripture know that the Bible is broken into two divisions, the Old and the New Testament here. And you're thinking, I don't remember reading about that in the Old Testament. Well, you know what? The heart and preparation of the gospel is all right there. Here's just a few examples. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? God shed the blood of an innocent animal and made clothes to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame because they were what? Naked. They sinned. Does that sound like the gospel? Absolutely. Because it was Jesus dying who covered our shame. It was his innocent blood that was to shed over us and to cover over our nakedness. Then God, he promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, which himself, while himself being wounded, again, that's the gospel message too, because Jesus was the virgin-born son. He defeated Satan on the cross, though suffering himself. Later in, later in Genesis chapter 6, God told Noah to build an ark to save his family from the coming judgment of the flood. This too displays the gospel, because Apostle Paul tells us that the ark was a picture of Jesus, who saves all who are in him from judgment. You see, Jesus is the ark, amen? Amen. Again, later in Genesis, God made a pact, an agreement, a promise, a covenant with Abraham and his seed to bless him through the whole world, of the whole world, through the Son. And that's the gospel again. Because the Apostle Paul tells us that the seed, the son of Abraham, is Christ Jesus. And Jesus is now bringing the blessing of salvation to the whole world. And years later, God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. If you're part of our, Germ- uh, our our Genesis series, you know that's where we're at right now. And Abraham, he obediently and he faithfully set out to do it. But God, he intervenes and he provides a substitute in the ram stuck in the thicket. And that's the gospel again. In fact, it's a double picture of Jesus because Jesus is the son whom the Father did sacrifice on the cross, and Jesus is the substitute. He is the ram caught in the thicket, which God provided in order that Isaac and you and I would be able to go free. Amen. But that's what the Bible is about, folks. It's not a book on moral behavior. It's not a book about how you can change yourself, because we can't change ourselves. Turn to your neighbor and say, sorry, but you can't change. We might be able to pick up better habits, right? Right? We might be able to kick an addiction or two. We might even improve our marriage and our relationships, but by our own strength, we will never wipe the sin-stained flesh and soul of our being. The Bible tells us that there's a bigger issue than what we think. Most people in the world, they try to live moralistically. That's just another word for the superficial, outward behavioral changes. The Bible tells us that the reason we have these surface issues is because there's something deeper in us. There's a deeper root issue that needs to be dealt with, but we can't do that alone. We can't do that for one another. We don't need a teacher to teach us how to be better. We don't need an instructor to instruct us how to do better. We don't need a guru to tell us how to find it within ourselves. No, what you and I need and what this world needs is a savior. We need a savior. We need to be saved from ourselves. And that Savior's name is Jesus. And 2,000 years ago today, he rose from the grave to prove to us all that he is, in fact, God in flesh. Hallelujah. But that's not all. What was God trying to teach us about the gospel and all those stories and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And this goes to our last and final point. God, he intends to redeem the world. Turn to your neighbor and say, redeem the world. Now, this might be difficult, But can you guys recall a time back in high school? Whoa, was that too far? Or maybe college. Is that still too far? How about this? Just recall a time when you had to do a group project. Oh, those I I hate group projects. Sometimes, yes, it works out well. Everyone pitches in. Everyone does their part. But there was a time in my life when there was absolutely no communication and no understanding of really the assignment by half of the group members. So the day of the deadline, we all got together. We put everything in one cohesive layout. And within the last few minutes, we realized that though we knew that we had the same tasks, that we were all using the same resources, that we were even speaking the same language, but we we all came to different conclusions. Everyone else was pursuing completely different plans. They were building different things. It was complete and utter chaos. And folks, I think that's the problem with some of us today. Some people think that God's agenda is different for every single person. That God's agenda is perhaps for them to make them happy and prosperous. Some people think God's agenda is for social purposes, to free the oppressed, and things like that. Some people think God's agenda is about feeding the poor and being charitable and cutting a check out to the needy and nothing more. Some people think God's agenda is the success of modern Israel. Some people think God's agenda is about concerning himself with your American dream and your pursuits. Maybe for some of us here, we think God's agenda is all about just me. It's about healing my wounds. It's about healing my brokenness. Or perhaps it's still about meaning that it's about my particular job or how God wants me to focus on my career. Maybe we think God's agenda is just simply about my wants and my needs. We all have differing agendas and thoughts of what God is trying to do in and through our lives. But from our text, thanks be to God, because Jesus makes it abundantly clear that there is one singular agenda, and that is this, to redeem his world. To redeem his world. We get that from verse 47. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that is, here it is, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. What are repentance and forgiveness? It is the way in which God redeems the world. Repentance and forgiveness. We need God's redemption. Without it, we're separated from God. Without it, we're separated between races. Without it, we're separated between cultures. Without it, we're separated between generations. Without it, we're separate between husbands and wives, parents and children, family members with other family members, and from people with differing points of view. So what's the answer to all this rampant and seemingly unavoidable, seemingly unsolvable problems? The answer is this. We need to repent. Repentance and forgiveness, because it is only through repentance and forgiveness that can bring us to reconciliation. That's it. Period. And this is a controversial statement because we're taught in the world not to admit we're wrong, right? We're taught in the world to keep our heads held high. We're taught to be proud and unapologetic. But folks, in order for us to be saved and to be a part of God's redemptive plan, we're told to do the exact opposite. The exact opposite. We're told to lower ourselves. We're told to admit our faults. We're told to confess our sins and to make transparent our brokenness and to reveal our wounds and our need for salvation. But here's the thing. To repent and ask for forgiveness means that someone has to forgive you. Someone has to forgive you. We can apologize for some of the things we've done to them, but those sins were still committed. They're still very much part of our lives, of our history. The person can say, I forgive you, but even that forgiveness can't undo all the wrong that the person has already done. No, we need forgiveness that will wipe the slate clean. That's what you and I need. A forgiveness that will completely wipe the slate clean. We need a forgiveness that doesn't just pass over the sin, but completely removes it. That's what we need how can we ever find that kind of forgiveness friends that's what the gospel does because the gospel tells us that God he grants repentance and in that repentance he is able to change our hearts something that you and I can't do for ourselves but not only that our sins you see can't be swept under a rug they were after all committed There were very real events in our lives that hurt us and hurt other people and have offended the holiness of God. There has to be payment for our sins. And the payment, like the Bible says, is death. But by His grace, God not only gives us the grace of repentance, but He also gives us the grace of forgiveness. The grace of forgiveness. So if we approach Him, this is the beauty of the gospel. If we approach His throne of mercy... In humility, he forgives you and he forgives me by putting his own son on the cross who paid it full. And what's amazing is that he doesn't treat us the way we ought to be treated because of the disgusting sins that you and I have committed. No, God, he removes our guilt from us as far as the east is from the west. And when he forgives, he remembers them no more and he does not use it against you. That's what God does. That's what the God of the Bible does. And that redemption isn't just for the middle class. It's not just for the Americans. It's not just for the Jews. No, the gospel of redemption is for people of all nations. Every single person you walk past, it's for them. Any person that you meet across the room, it's for them. You see, from the moment sin entered his creation, God has set in motion the plan of redemption to reclaim his creation. Look at verse 48. He says, you are witnesses of these things, meaning... That is our agenda as the church. This is our agenda as the church. We're not called to be spectators in this world. We're not called to be critics of this world. We're called to be witnesses, telling them what we know of Jesus, that he suffered and that he died and that he rose from the dead. We're called to be witnesses who model repentance and who model forgiveness. And yeah, that might seem impossible, but we're told here in verse 49 that we'll be clothed with power from on high. Turn to your neighbor and say this, that's good. That means the Holy Spirit will empower us. But for what? Empower us to live comfortably? Empower us to live peacefully? Empower us to live luxuriously? Empower us to stomp on people to prove that we're right? Empower us to live pridefully and selfishly? No, he promises to empower us so that we can live lives of repentance. That is how the Holy Spirit empowers you. He gives you the power to repent, and he gives you the power what, to be forgiven. For three years, you see, Jesus, he preached, and he taught his disciples, but they all failed to understand what he was all about. So after his resurrection, when his work had been perfectly displayed, again, this is Christ saying, look at me. I am the living proof here. Jesus spent another 40 days teaching his disciples what they are to do in this world. So he taught them the point of the scriptures that it all all pointed to the gospel of his death and resurrection. But he also taught them that God's agenda is not just for your own personal ambition or your own personal pursuit. God's agenda is to redeem and reclaim his world. So maybe you're new to this. Maybe you came because for years your family <laughs> dragged you to come to Easter. I've never seen so many people come to church near my home. There's this church there and the whole, all the sidewalks just flooded with people walking. I'm like, well, this is nice. I believe that you are specifically here, sitting here in Shining Star Community Church, on, in these chairs, because God has brought you here. God has brought you here. And you're here because today the Lord, through His Word, has revealed to you a solution to an issue we all have, our sin issue. God is extending His grace of repentance to you today, and in that repentance, He will grace you with forgiveness in Christ Jesus. This forgiveness will close the eternity sized chasm between you and him and will unite you to the amazing purpose and plan and presence of a God who loved you so much that he put his own son on the cross to die for your sins. So that if you believe and confess that Jesus died and that he rose from the grave, you will be saved. You will be saved because it's God's plan to redeem you and to redeem the world so that we all might see the spectacular and the marvelous glory of our God who loves us. And that's what the Bible's all about. And so I pray that's what we as a church would be all about. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Good Father, we thank you so much that today is the day that Christ defeated death where his death was a full payment, paid in full for the sins of mankind for my sins and who am I to have deserved that I am no one and I am nothing and I certainly could not have earned my way to you Father because even on my best day no matter how perfectly I try to live I will always fall short of your perfect glory. The pride of man in thinking that somehow we can earn our way up to a perfect and holy God. Lord, we commit sins each and every single day. And these sins will be accounted for. These sins have to be paid for. There are consequences for the wages of sin is death, you said in Scripture. But yet, Lord, by your sovereign grace, in your infinite love, you have given us your Son, who is 100% man and 100% God, who died a sinner's death, who died my death, the place I should have been, to give me a life that I did not deserve. The only way for me to get to you or the only way for any person to get to you, Father, is not by our doing, but by yours. And so we thank you, God, that it is by your love that you have chosen us. God, it's because of your love you have saved us. It is by your love you will continue to lead us in our lives here until we see you face to face. And maybe we have some friends here today who do not know you. Maybe they know of you, but they do not know you. Maybe they do know some stories like I've said before, some interesting stories of Scripture and how fun and interesting and perhaps even inspiring they are but again they do not know you they know the material but they don't know the author god today i pray that your holy spirit break that barrier down and in the name of jesus that they will come in humility and in brokenness and in contrition and say god i realize i can't do it myself i've tried but i failed and i'll try it again but i know i'll fail again God, would you come and lead me to you? Holy Spirit, would you lead me to you today? Jesus, I want to believe that 2,000 years ago, you died on the cross for my sins, and you rose from the grave victoriously. You've conquered death. And when I place my trust and faith in you, Lord, I want to believe that I now have a right relationship with you, God. That my acceptance in you of you is not based on my performance or my work, but is based solely on the work of Jesus Christ. Friends, brothers and sisters, can I give you an opportunity today, right now, to, to take just a minute or two and pray a prayer? Maybe you don't know how to pray, that's okay, because prayer is simply is speaking frankly to God, who hears and knows your heart above all things. Share with Him your concerns. And if you're struggling to believe, know that God is one who gifts us belief. He gifts us faith. So say, God, give me faith. Let the scales from my eyes fall, just as it did for Apostle Paul when he was killing and persecuting Christians. And in one day, seeing Christ change his life so miraculously that he is now the greatest missionary ever. God, give me faith. Let's take a moment and pray. And like we learned in Scripture today, that it would lead to repentance because that repentance would lead to forgiveness of our sins. So let's take this time and let's pray.